Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson, and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life. And now I'm taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in every episode. To have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing, so that you can learn, apply, and see what else is out there and enrich your life with every episode. Before we get started, I want to draw attention to a crowdfunding campaign that I'm going to be starting. I've been doing this podcast for so many years, and I know a lot of you have been enjoying my content asking for ways you can give back and help out. This is going to be a big one that you can do. In the show notes, you're going to see a link to a website that's going to show you what I'm working on, kind of the concept, the vision that I'm working with. And if you sign up, if you share it with your friends, you'll get a chance even if you don't partake in the crowdfunding campaign to win what I'm, I'm making. And what I'm making is an advanced modern hive that'll make it so bees can live and thrive, beekeepers and bee researchers can be connected through data and sensory units put inside the hive so that you can know what's going on in your hive 24 seven. So it's easier, there's less confusion and much, much, much more, but I don't wanna get into that now. Without, just check the show notes, sign up, tell your friends. It's really easy. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I can't do this without your help. So please help me out. Today is the first part in a multi part series with many, many, many different guests that's going to be running this month. And today we have Kelly. She's the director, a director at the Pollinator Partnership. We get into so much in this episode. We get into how she found her way into pollination, how she found her way into the NGO, the different ways that you. Every single one of you listening can help out pollinating insects, the decline of the monarch butterfly and what they're doing to solve it, the monarch butterfly highway, the different types of bees that she likes, how chocolate is only possible to exist with pollinating insects. Much, 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 much more is talked about in this episode. If you want to hear what is going on in the pollinating space, this is the episode for you. So without further ado, we're going to get into this. This is part one. This is the full episode. It's not broken up like normally. Each different part is a different person. So let's hit it. I'm curious, uh, as like a good starter question is, what are you deeply passionate about and how did that lead you to being a part of a pollinator NGO? So I would say I'm deeply passionate about the environment in general, but more particularly um, plants. I love plants and I've always have, you know, growing up and and throughout my undergrad and graduate degree, I took a lot of botany classes and um, I didn't really know much about pollinators before I started working here, but there's just such a clear connection with, you know, the evolution of plants and animals. And um, that's where, you know, my passion and my work has really come out, I think. Do you have like a, a pollinator fact that you like to tell people? I don't know if you go to like cocktail parties. I've never been to a cocktail party, but I hear they exist. But if you were to go to a cocktail party, are there like facts that you tell people to get them jazzed since there was a while where you didn't know about the, the cool intricacies yeah. of it? So usually the most common facts that we like to tell people that kind of blow, blow the average mind that, you know, people that don't really know much about pollinators are, you've probably heard that they provide one in every three bites of 
food that we eat, Mm -hmm. um, which is pretty astounding. Thinking about if they weren't here, we would have a very limited diet of like potatoes and wheat. Um, Also that there's 20,000 species of pollinators in the world. Um, 4,000 in the United States, 4,000 species of bees in the United States. And in California alone, where I live, there's 1,600 species of bees. So most people are aware of, you know, the honeybee, which actually is non-native from Europe. Um, but there's just a wide breadth of other native bees that are really, really cool, all shapes and sizes and colors. So, Are there capstone stories that you try to tell people to help illustrate the importance of pollinators? I know like people understand like one third, but mm-hmm. I know there's um like one example I can think of off the top of my head is the out in China, they have to like manually go around and pollinate their, their, their plants, which can't be an efficient or effective, you know, way of going about things. Yeah. Are are there other stories like that, that you like to use to help people see the value of them? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the kind of easiest connection that we've found for people is, is a relation to food and agriculture. And, you know, the fact that they provide a lot of our diet But also, I think, um, really pointing out um, the particular food crops that they do pollinate and really having people think about where we'd be without them. And I always think about where we would be without coffee because I'm a coffee drinker. I think a lot of people are. And when you think about, you know, the workforce, you know, down here in downtown San Francisco without coffee, it would be pretty different. And um, so I always think about, you know, what, how, where would we be without pollinators? Um, they just provide so much. So, um, you know, thinking about things like coffee, chocolate, um, you know, um, berries, all those things that they provide. And also, really importantly, that those food crops that they provide are really good for human health. So they're providing all these antioxidants and um, uh, things that are really essential to our diet that, you know, we just would not have without them. Do you have a favorite pollinator related food? Ooh, that's a I guess it might be popcorn. Yeah. Or chocolate, you know? Yeah. It depends on the time of day, but yeah, yeah I, I do love chocolate, so probably do that. Mine would have to be strawberries. That's mainly because like chocolate, I don't know. Have you ever tried dark this this is a tangent, but do you, do you have you ever tried dark sea salt chocolate? Or yeah. yeah, that's like the best chocolate. I don't know. I haven't had anything better than that. I don't know as like a chocolate connoisseur if there's a better recommendation out there but it's pretty I good agree. i'm i'm on the same page with you <laughs> all right sweet yeah. i'm glad i'm not like alone on that the i like to keep i think there's like everyone should have like a chocolate um you know like the i, I don't think it's the fcc because that's something else like radio broadcasting but there's the the cdc that says that you should have like three days of supplies or something like that in your house you should have like three days of chocolate at any time mm-hmm. like you never know like someone's coming over they have a problem give them give them some chocolate it like mellows them out yeah. but but is there um is there a pollinated insect that you like in your free time like to like if you're going out into a park that you tend to like see a lot or that you look for yeah definitely well i'm always looking for pollinators wherever i am um i have um a lot of hummingbirds in my backyard so i probably see a hummingbird every day which I really love. And it's usually in the morning. Um, And so that's something I really enjoy. And I'm always kind of looking for. I also love native bees. And there's a particular bee called Agapostamin, which is Mm -hmm. a type of sweat bee. And it's half metallic green, 
and half black and yellow stripes. And I just think it looks really cool. So whenever I see that, I get excited. Mm-hmm. It sounds pretty. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Are they, I get, I imagine that's like a, a California one. Like you wouldn't see it anywhere else. No, they, they have, that's the genus. So they have, you know, various species within that, but they've got them as far as I know, you know, they're pretty widely dispersed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess we've, we've established like how much you like pollinators, but mm-hmm. how did you uh, get into the NGO? Like you, you could have done anything in life conceivably, maybe be an astronaut, but um, what, what made you want to join them? Yeah. So, you know, it happened pretty serendipitously. I mean, I, I went to UC Santa Cruz for my undergraduate degree. And um, I, after that, moved to San Francisco and was, you know, working in the food industry for a while. And then I really stumbled upon an internship opportunity um, on Craigslist. And, you know, I, I knew I wanted to do something environmentally related, but I didn't really care beyond that. I just wanted to get my, you know, feet wet a little bit. But I loved the idea of working for a nonprofit. Um, my family, you know, my mom and both my sisters have done that. And I just, you know, I always felt like it was a really admirable thing to do. So I was excited about the opportunity. And I started working at Pollinator Partnership uh, just three days a week for a few years. And then um, I have since been promoted and I've been here now for six years and I'm the director of programs. So it's been just a really great organic experience. I mean, the the organization itself, it has been around for over two decades. So there's just so many good things that, you know, our organization has done for pollinators. And um, yeah, it just makes me really proud. And it also going back to, you know, my passion, you know, I'm passionate about the environment, environmental health in general and how it connects to human health. So it's just such a perfect bridge um, to those two topics. And the fact that I get to work with native plants and, you know, do restoration and and be outside sometimes, um, that's just a a great fit. Mm -hmm. I think that's, um, that's one of the things that people miss out if they're like in a corporate job, like normal one that you don't like, I guess, depending on what you're doing, like you don't get to see the effects of your work. And so like, you, even to like, you could probably like calculate out like how, like how much your time actually goes out to helping the environment. But are there any, like at, at your, at where you are now, are there good like things that you want to see? Like the thing that keeps popping in my head, this is not related to bees, but like I'll draw the analogy of the comparison is like the, like the Mississippi river is like one of the most polluted rivers in the world. And so like what a good thing would be like clean that thing up, but like, that's not what you guys would do. But like, is there something like that, that you're, you would like to have done with your effort? Um, that may, maybe not that monumentous, but like, uh, that's on your list. That's a good question. I feel like there's a lot, (laughs) a lot of things that we're trying to do, um, for pollinators, but to be specific, um, the Western population of the monarch butterfly, it has been dramatically declined. Um, the populations are just extremely low. I, this past winter where they're overwintering on the California coast, um, went to three different, uh, overwintering sites and I didn't see a single monarch. So, and I grew up, you know, seeing them year after year, especially living in Santa Cruz. And, um, I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to bring that population back and be able to see them, you know, year after year. And, um, you know, future generations will get to enjoy this awesome migration from, you know, the Sierras 
over these mountains to the California coast. It's, it's beautiful. So I'd be really happy to see that. All right. Two questions. First, um, is it true that monarch butterflies, like they go around a mountain range that used to exist? Or is that just like one of those urban legends? I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Like they're, when well, they're migratory, it's fine if you don't have this answer because <laughs> it is like out of nowhere. But, but I hear that on the, they migrate and they go around like this mountain that used to exist near the Great Lakes, even though it doesn't exist anymore. And they, like the idea is like it's like stuck in their like primal memory or something like that as to where to go. Oh, I don't know if there's any truth to that. I don't know about that. Okay. That's interesting. No, I haven't heard about that. Huh. All right. All right. Sweet. So, um, I don't know, maybe something to look up, but the <laughs> yeah, yeah. number two, and if anyone listened into this knows that answer, please email me. And it's fine if it's conspiracy theory level. I, I just like reading about cool things like that. But the second one is what are some of the ways that you would arrest the decline of the monarch butterfly? Like you see the population is doing the lean. Like what is the, like the strategy or the process you'd go through you okay. and the team to bring them back? Yeah. So we actually have a program that we're working on out here that's got some goals that and objectives to try and try and um, you know bring the population back. So uh, it's called Monarch Things Across California. So what we're doing is uh, basically setting up a network of monarch habitat and research plots throughout the state. And there's a few objectives. So one is to get habitat in the ground because pretty commonly accepted that um, loss of habitat is the biggest, you know, detriment to the monarch butterfly's decline. Mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, a lot of agricultural intensification that's happened in the Central Valley of, of California if we're talking about just the Western population here. Um, and so they essentially are migrating, you know, and they have nowhere to stop. They can only fly for so long. So they have nowhere to stop and feed, refuel. Um, and so the number one thing we really need to do is just set up those, that, those habitat plots. They need nectar plants, so plants that are going to provide sugar, basically, carbohydrates. And um, they do need host plants as well to lay their eggs on and for the caterpillars to eat. So the other component of this is to plant milkweed. Um, and we want to plant native, regionally specific milkweed is very important as well. Um, so planting nectar plants, planting milkweed. And I think also the other, you know, I guess a third kind of more habitat component of that would be to protect their overwintering grounds as well. Um, because they they overwinter on the California central coast. They overwinter in primarily eucalyptus trees. Um, but they're being deforested for, um, development basically mm -hmm. houses and things like that so um there's a lot of preserves and a lot of people are already protecting them which, which is fantastic um but we need to make sure that those protections stay in place um and then lastly i think we just need to learn more about the species the population out here um and so that's kind of the last goal of our of our project is to actually go out and collect data and see actually what's happening where and really be able to hone in on their needs so then we can inform future conservation efforts. I think modern uh, butterflies are really beautiful. Just as like a quick aside before asking some questions on that, because they, the, yeah. they have like a lot of symbolism that helps people like get past grief. I know when, um, when I was in college, there was a, a nonprofit like hospice center that would every year for the people that you know, diet essentially, they would have like these monarch butterfly releases where like everyone got a butterfly and it mm -hmm. kind of like, 
help them move past it. And I just remember this, uh, this time like this, like I helped raise money. So like for, it was the first time that they ever had enough for everyone, which is really cool. Cause then like all the Monarch butterflies could be in Rockford, Illinois, which is where I was from. Mm-hmm. And like, it was like a, a nice nature center as well. So I was like kind of helping you guys out, but, uh, probably not intentionally. So the, but there was this guy who was, um, who like was releasing one and he's like this really, really old guy. So he's like slowly like letting it out and the butterfly like, like pops out and like goes around his head a couple of times and then lands on his chest and just like slowly beats his wings, its wings to like his heartbeat while looking at him. And then like the guy just starts crying and then the butterfly like flies away. And he just like, it feels like he, when he, when I was looking at the guy, it was like everyone stopped moving because it was just like this, like really unique experience. And like, as soon as like the butterfly looked him in the, in the eyes, like it almost like, like a marionette strings like were cut from because it was like all that tension that you didn't realize was in him like went out and he like and i found out that his wife died that like not like a month before so it Mm kind of just felt like this cathartic experience which like you couldn't you couldn't really have that with any other insect but a monarch butterfly because like the many different things that they can represent but i um just relating that to help people see like it's it's not just science or, or what we can do for the the um the world but there's also like this great emotional attachment to it but i hear that in norway they're building these um like bee highways where like the bees can have like propagation up and down. Are you guys working on something like that as well to like have habitats going across that migration? Okay, sweet. So you know what I'm talking about. Yep, yep absolutely. So um, a lot of times and they can, it, those types of corridors can be applicable to a, a lots of different types of wildlife. So it's really a wildlife corridor. Mm-hmm. And roadways are actually a really good way and, and also utility rights of way, um, various stretches of land that are already being managed and are already kind of set out in a path, um, but maybe have been degraded a little bit or don't quite have the habitat, the plants that are needed for those um, for those wildlife species. So yeah, absolutely. Habitat connectivity is one of the most important things, especially for migratory uh, animals like monarch butterflies. Um, so yes, yeah, setting up these kind of patchy um, networks of habitat is, is really important. Is there an area in particular that you would need people? Like if there was like, I don't know, like a place, like a region in Oregon that you can't get people so yeah. far to like jump in, but yeah. Is there like regions that you need? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's a couple. So in the West out here in, in California and Oregon and, and Washington, even down into Arizona, actually, um, we we really need habitat everywhere because some sometimes these areas a little are a little bit um, of a hostile environment, really dry, really hot, um, and again have a lot of agriculture where there's not a whole lot of habitat mixed in there. So I think encouraging um, individuals, homeowners, or also agricultural produ- producers to incorporate habitat into those areas would be really really helpful for not just the monarch, but other wildlife as well, other pollinators. And then actually, so you're in Austin, and I'm sure you're familiar with the I-35 corridor, mm-hmm. which goes through Austin. So it's, you know, this highway that goes all the way from, you know, Mexico to Canada, basically. And that has been identified as a really good corridor, or they call it the monarch highway for the central migration of the monarch butterfly. So um, there's been really great um, coordinated efforts to get habitat along that highway as well. Hmm. I imagine it's easier as well to like get the highways. I know like in my hometown, they, um, 
they had like a bunch of native flowers that they put all over the place. And it was mm-hmm. easy for them because it was just, you know, government land. They didn't have to get like 20 people to sign off on it. But is yeah. there, um, is there like a minimum density? Like if someone had like a backyard, like how much space should they put to these plants for it to have an impact? Like, do you know that number or is that? Good question. Good question. It's a hard question. It's a hard metric to really be specific about, but you know, what we generally say is that any size, you know, big or small, we need it all. So it's, you know, a little corny, but it's really true. I mean, yeah. Can have you can have a small window box in your apartment building and that can actually attract bees that might be in the city or in an urban area um in terms of milkweed really just a small patch can be really helpful so you know i'm talking like five to ten plants something like that um so you really don't need to you know it can just be like one little corner of your yard if you've got other stuff going on in your space um that you can des- designate just like a little corner or patch um that's great if you can do more that's that's even better um but again it's it's really about it's more about kind of like the spatial distribution of these throughout so that we've got you know the connected habitat it doesn't need to be continuous Mm -hmm. um because you know these insects fly and um they're they're pretty good at getting around um but we just need to make sure that they're not their ranges aren't being stifled to just a really small area. And that's when biodiversity is lost and um, populations decline. I know Monsanto had um, a while ago had like these little packets of like bee friendly plants. Mm-hmm. Is there yeah. a, a good like starter kit for people who want to get more pollinator friendly things around or is it just look them up and like, look like find those? Yeah, definitely. So there's, there's a lot of great resources out there. So, Pollinator Partnership, our organization, our website is www.pollinator.org. And we have actually a webpage where you can put in your zip code and you'll get a planting list for pollinators. And it's sorted by like color of plant, you know, um, what's going to do well in which season, what, you know, by bloom period, and then also what pollinators it attracts. So you can even look if you really want to attract a hummingbird with a red plant you'll be able to find something and it'll be native and eco-originally specific to your area. Um, so that's a great resource if you're just looking for, you know, a, quite a, a bigger complement of options of native plants. Um, we also work with a lot of native seed companies that are just fantastic. And I, I always encourage people to go to a native plant nursery near you and get to know them. They're usually just amazing people and they're super helpful in terms of getting you something that is native and something you're going to enjoy to have in your, in your house or in planter box or, or something like that. Um, we work with botanical interests, which is kind of a larger uh, seed company and they have a seed mix that's really inexpensive and it's called I heart pollinators. And um, it's, we did it in conjunction with them and it's a really great mix of just kind of, like you said, kind of like a good starter mix um, for for people to get going and with pollinator habitat. All right, sweet. And uh, for everyone listening, there will be links directly to everything she just said, so you can just go straight to it. But for audio listeners, it's good that she uh, specified the URL as well. Um, so I know there was a couple of programs that we wanted to touch on. Um, there was the North American, I cannot read my handwriting, North American Pollinator, pollinator Protection Campaign. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. 
yeah. So uh, what what about it is I know it's I, I believe it's coming up soon. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I don't know why I'm like uh, squinting on that, but um. So what is what are what are ways that people can uh, help out? And, well, I guess before we get to that, like, uh, what is it about, and uh, what are you what are you really excited about the campaign and what it's going to do? For sure, great. So yeah, the North American Pollinator Protection Campaign is um, a really unique initiative. So it's managed by Pollinator Partnership, our organization, but it's actually a really large collaborative effort. So we have about 170 member organizations, and these are a mix of government agencies, other NGOs, um, industry, uh, university researchers, and just like interested volunteers and conservationists. So it's a really diverse group of people. And um, we essentially get them all together once once a year, which is um, in October, and it's usually in Washington, D.C. And we all work together to um, talk about, you know, current topics with pollinators in North America, um, issues that they're facing, um, and also come up with ideas and strategies to help them. So. We break up into different task forces. Um, there's usually about 10, and they're um, chaired by various like leaders in the, in the field and um, just help facilitate discussion and, and kind of um, um, hone the objective and the trajectory of the, of the task force. And um, they come up with something really tangible, some sort of... Um, tasks that they want to work on together throughout the following year. So we really get people together. It's, it's, it's not a typical conference where you're just listening to lectures and, and speeches, which is great. And we have a small portion of that, but we really get people to put to work. And we um, expect, expect a lot of these really generous volunteers, really amazing people. Um, we've got a task force on pesticide education. We've got one on monarch butterflies. We have one on a really interesting one on pollinators on managed lands, which looks at things like um, renewable en- energy, like solar. That's a b- really big hot topic right now to actually encourage people to incorporate pollinator habitat on solar fields, um, utility rights of way. So these managed lands that people may not think about can be actually really valuable habitat. Um, so that's kind of the whole idea behind NAPSI. It's it's North American scope, so it's kind of this tri-national collaboration, mm-hmm. um, and it's had some real, real impressive accomplishments over the years. Um, and with that, another kind of, so that's the conference that we do each year. We also do um, an annual poster. So we have an educational poster that if you go on our website, you'll, you'll see a bunch of the past ones and the current ones. And um, we um, raise money basically to distribute these, and um, they we distribute about two hundred thousand a year, and they're educational pieces that people can use, you know, in festivals or in classrooms or you know your office, um, just to share the word about different pollinator topics. Um, and then the last component of it is uh, National Pollinator Week which some of your listeners may have heard of because it's really, um, really taken shape and, and gained a lot of momentum over the past few years. So this is something that um, started in 2007. Um, we actually worked with the U.S. Forest Service to get a resolution from the Senate 
to pass this proclamation of National Pollinator Week. And since then, um, we've done so each year. We've gotten um, proclamations from the governors of each 50 states, as well as the Secretary of Agriculture and the Secretary of the Interior. So it's a really unique, you know, bipartisan effort um, that just people people get really excited about, you know, are getting on board with um, showing their support for pollinators and why they're essential to, you know, our planet and also, you know, human health. And um, it's it's amazing all of the individual communities and smaller local groups that get involved as well. Um, we usually have around like 300 local events that take place during this one week in June uh, for Pollinator Week. And it's, it's just a really fun celebration of pollinators and um, all the bounty they provide to us. So um, that's kind of, that's the gist of, of the North American Pollinator Protection Campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I um like the pollinator week is so ingrained in like my calendar I I've I've thought it was like like Arbor Day or something like it's been going on for such a long time but if Arbor Day is new too then I'm sorry for making that as a reference but I'm pretty like they just feel like they've been around for a while but at the same time like that's kind of like the the downside of doing such a good job that people don't realize that you did a good job and it came out of like the last couple of decades of work um I I love that especially like one like one cool thing like we talk about pollinators like people kind of can imagine like the food but like honey is like a cool one too Mm -hmm. because like apparently if you have like allergies and you get honey from that local area like it helps for the allergies i don't know if that's a real thing but like i eat a lot of honey and i don't have allergies that's anecdotal (laughs) but it might be something but i've I've heard that for sure i think i think that is true yeah all right so the um so we kind of have a good overview how can people listen in help out like what are the that's a big thing i think everyone has like that inner everyone that i don't i don't i'm trying to think of anyone i know who's like burned the forest um i don't know anyone who's like burned the forest and like screwed screwed the the nature but um so like everyone wants to help out but then it's always like oh it's like you know 100 miles to the right or 100 miles to the left which is pretty cool that people can get like these seed packets and start doing stuff in their backyard but what are some ways that people can help out and be really a part of this um because conservation's it's a lot of fun actually like people think it's like you go out on the the sun and like break break your back or something like that. But it's fun because like, or for like, I guess a couple of reasons, like one, you're not doing it alone. Like there's usually other people with you. And two, you get to see the, like the fruits of your labor and see it like change over time. I think that's, that's the thing that I think, like I grew up on a farm and I love planting something and seeing how it changes over the years. And I think that the more that people get into conservation and see that it kind of makes them feel a little bit more grounded, but I'm curious, like what are some ways that people can essentially feel grounded by helping out with conservation? Uh, even like specifically with these programs? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I do think your point about, you know, individuals being able to see the effect that they're having and the change that they're making is is really, really important in getting people on board and staying on board. Because, um, you know, sometimes things become a hot topic and um, they may lose a little bit of momentum and it's hard to, in my experience, um, keep people motivated for conservation because it can be challenging and it can take time. So I would say patience is really, really important, especially when you're working with, you know, installing habitat and um, planting gardens and using native plants. Um, But I think, you know, beyond just, you know, planting native plants in your garden, um, there's a lot of um, various programs that with our organization and other organizations that folks get involved in. So, 
throughout the Midwest in eight different states, we have, um, we're doing a, essentially a seed collection network where we need volunteers to um, get trained by us, um, which is free. And um, you, you learn about like the target native plant species that we're looking for and about, you know, um, why this helps, helps the monarch butterfly. And um, you go out with a team and um, you collect native seed. And this is so that we can then take the seed, clean it, propagate some of it, and then put it back on the landscape. So we're really building up a native genotype, all the collected seeds going back to where it came from. So that's one thing in the Midwest and eight states that um, you can find on our website. And that's a really amazing effort. And I think, uh, you know, from what we've heard from everyone involved, it, it's really re rewarding as well for folks. Um, so that's kind of more of like a an on the ground kind of, you know, hands-on thing that people could do beyond just planting in their own landscape. Um, but we always encourage people, you know, there's kind of a few things we, we kind of usually repeat over and over because it's really important for pollinators. So um, we always encourage people to be mindful of their use of pesticides and that can be herbicides as well as um, insecticides. So if you are a farmer or if you have a home garden or a lawn or you're a land manager, um, you know, be mindful and try to reduce or eliminate if possible the use of pesticides. And that's, that's, you know, can be really, really important. Um, and I think, you know, supporting, supporting people that are um, practicing these good stewardship um, tactics is also really great. It helps kind of um, propel this momentum for good practices for pollinators. And I should mention that a lot of this habitat and efforts and these practices help other wildlife as well. It's not just pollinators. Pollinator habitat is great for like, you know, game and birds and a lot of other things. And they, it helps with tons of other stuff I could get into. But um, I think um, really um, showing people your support, like farmers, maybe at farmer's market that are using bee-friendly practices. Buy, buy fruit from them, buy produce from them and help support them. Or local beekeepers. You know, buy their honey, um, you know, show them support. And I think that's a really great and, and easy way to, to help pollinators. Um, and I think, you know, beyond, beyond those efforts, just trying to help to, you know, spread the word about the importance of pollinators because it is becoming more of a hot topic, but it, you'd be surprised how many people we talk to that still don't really know what pollinators are or why they're important or think that, you know, there's just the honeybee and that's the one type of bee. Um, so I think helping to educate and inspire others to get on board. Um, and probably one of the easier things that folks could do if you have the means is to support conservation organizations like Pollinator Partnership. Um, and there's tons of other groups as well that are amazing um, in this sphere. And um, that's another way just to show your support and, and help propel the projects that are already going on as well. Working backwards in what you said, the, the NGO, the, it's a tax write-off type, right? It's not like, so like when you donate it, like it's good yeah. on your taxes. So like we're getting yeah. towards that time of the year. So if anyone wants to help yeah. out on their taxes, this is a good one to do. 
Yeah. The, um, then, uh, have you heard of Master Master Gardener? Yeah. Okay. Have you guys thought about making like a Master Pollinator thing? Because in, in line with like finding seeds and stuff? Because I totally get in on that. Like be a Master Pollinator. That'd be fun. That's a good idea. Yeah, we we have um, so we have a program called the Pollinator Stewardship Certification, which is basically a it's a workshop course that you go through that kind of makes you a pollinator steward or a pollinator ambassador. Um, and then you can then kind of take the tools you've learned and, and share them elsewhere. And there is a kind of like master gardener. You need to do a certain amount of hours and, and things like that to get this kind of title. And so there is a, a project component also that you need to do an on the ground habitat project. And, um, that that's a cool one. It's a relatively new project. We've just done a few pilot workshops, but um, if anyone's interested to have one in their area, you can reach out to us. Um, is there like a master insert blank that you'd want to do? Like, is there like a, a program or something that you'd want to be like the master gardener of? Just as like a quick aside. Um, I don't know. Master about YouTuber. It. I don't know. <laughs> book uh, book reader. Uh, I don't know. Master Pollinator would be like the coolest one. Yeah, I, I'd put that. I'd put that at like I get like a button. I put it in the background so people can like see it. I'm gonna put that like we mentioned the poster. I'm gonna like get one and put it right back here so it can be in all my videos. But um, one uh that it's all right if you don't you know I'm gonna answer for that. But I'm curious the uh, for people who maybe weren't in some of the areas you mentioned and for people wondering like the states and stuff like that in the outro I'll list all of them and like have contact information but. Are there ways that people can help out uh, in an online way? I know like with the new election coming up, there's like, I've been learning about phone banking where like, people like, can like call mm -hmm. people and be helpful. So there's like, even like no matter where you are, there's usually a way to help out. But I'm curious, are there anything, is there anything online that people can do to help? Um, I couldn't imagine if there's like paperwork or something, but like, yeah, what can they do other than like yeah. help out in the ways you mentioned? Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of something kind of online based. Well. We do have one thing that can be used really anywhere, um, and it is technically online. It's actually an app, um, and it's called the Insight Citizen Science app. And this is something that is totally free. It's fun, and it also does help pollinators. So, and it's something you can do anywhere in North America. Um, and it is an app that uh, teaches people how to observe pollinators in a scientific so actually doing a scientific observation. Um, it teaches about the identifi identification of other of various pollinator groups and then um, gives you a counts you down with a five minute window and you basically tally up um, the certain pollinators that you that you're seeing. And actually we, we then collect all of this data. So it's geolocated, it takes um, the temperature, um, you know your, your specific location. You can also take photos and upload photos of the plants that you're observing the pollinators on. So that's a really easy way to provide us with some data. So we can actually, over time, follow some of these population dynamics of pollinators and um, see what's happening to them over time. Mm -hmm. So that's, and it's really fun. It's a really user-friendly app. It's, it's, it's really great. So that'd be a fun thing for people to do. Sweet. I'm gonna try it out and then uh, people can hear my thoughts on it in the outro. But, um, oh. but, um, and I'll try out most of the things you suggest, uh, but the, have you, I don't know how to categorize this, but the, there's like ornithologists that where they go around 
I just checked myself to make sure I'm not saying like a dentist type, but like people who like looking at birds and they go around and they like have a a part of the year where they like go out and take pictures of the birds. Have you guys thought about doing like a challenge like that where like for a certain period, like to see like the population levels or if it does exist, I'm sorry for not knowing about it, but it'd be fun to like have like a a small window where people can all get the app at the same time and kind of like sharing it kind of like the original Pokemon go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great idea. And something that we're kind of dabbling in. There's a, there are quite a few other citizen science efforts for pollinators that are great. There's, um, the great sunflower project. There's, um, bumblebee watch, I believe it's called. Um, there's also a monarch butterfly Thanksgiving count. So there's all these things you can look up and get involved in. Um, but yeah, the, the time of year, can be tricky because there's so many different types of pollinators. So it kind of depends on which species you're talking about. Um, but we have, we did actually for the first time last year during pollinator week, since we just launched this app, we did get some teams out there to, you know, learn how to use it and, um, and kind of have a concerted effort for, for collecting the data. And I think we'll do that again on um, this next pollinator week too. Oh, sweet. Um, I will contribute to that. Uh, okay. So that'd be fun. The, I know, hopefully we talked about, I think maybe we talked around this, but we got into the, I have notes to talk about the wingspan. Did we talk about that or we talk? We did a bit. Yeah. So um, that, that's our Midwestern Monarch Conservation Project. So that's where we're collecting the seed with these volunteers and then um, putting them back on the landscape. Um, It's, it's actually a, it started um, actually in Ohio. Uh, so we've got this Monarch Lands Across America project, which is all of North America since they migrate beyond the country boundaries. Um, and we we started this project in Ohio. It then went to five states. It's now in eight states. Um, and it's all essentially in the Midwest in the um, uh, Monarch Butterfly Central migration corridor. Um, and... So far, we've impacted over 30,000 acres of land for monarchs through these volunteers and through our great partner network. We're working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, a bunch of land trusts, county parks, farmers, individuals, um, all are signing on board. They're, they're actually, a lot of them are making um, voluntary commitments if they have pollinator habitat, monarch habitat on their lands to manage them for um, keeping them in place for at least five years. So we're hoping this will be, you know, something that will have a real impact in that, in that region. And um, we're looking to expand it as well. So hopefully we'll have an effort in, in every state eventually. Sweet. So the, um, if I imagine if people went onto your website and I'll have links for this when I Google it, but the, is there a way to like apply or like talk about getting if, you, if people have land and they're in the Midwest to get it a part of the program? Yes. Yep. So there's a habitat survey that folks can fill out. Um, I think for 2019, we're hitting the end of the season, but it'll, it will be reopened again in the winter for 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a survey there for people, for landowners or land managers to fill out. And then there's also volunteer forms. So if you want to volunteer, maybe you don't have land, but you want to get involved in the seed collection, um, you can do that there. You can fill out, you know, that you're interested or you can go ahead and just get trained online. So we have an online training module that has a webinar series of, you know, videos and PowerPoints that people 
can go through and um, then you get a certificate at the end of it and you're certified to essentially take part in the C collection effort. So the, um, I know we, we, we want to talk about this. So this is a, a bit of a transition, but I know um, this you made me think of it by saying 2020, which is so weird. Like the decade's already, already over, but um, <laughs> I'm curious for the next decade, do you, you personally, and then uh, the pollinator network, um, that's not the name. Pollinator partnership. There you go. Thank you. Uh, pollinator <laughs> partnership. I'm sorry about that. But, um, uh, it was like earlier when I thought, or I said ornithologist and I started picturing dentist. Like I'm just, I'm always worried that I'm going to brain fart, but, um, is there, uh, do you guys, do you have, do you personally, and do you guys have some, um, goals or objectives that you're thinking about for 2020? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, well, personally, I mean, I, within my role in the organization and just kind of in general, I mean, I just want to work to make pollinators one of the most important things in, you know, the environmental um, conservation movement. I think they are one of the most important things. You know, they're up there with, I mean, when you talk about climate change, you're talking about pollinator conservation, um, both in that, you know, pollinators are extremely affected by climate change and also they help combat climate change. I mean, carbon sequestration, all of their habitat and the plants that they support and the plants that would not survive without them are extremely related. Um, and I just, I personally want to strive to have everyone realize that and how important that they are. Um, and then speaking for Pollinator Partnership and our organization, um, you know, generally within, you know, along the same lines that I was just saying, we have um, a pollinator action team, which is a basically our membership. And we are trying to grow our membership, both in terms of, you know, financial sponsors and also um, partners and also just individuals that want to stay in touch with us and help where they can. Like, you know, you're asking how people can help in the Midwest or if they just don't have a yard or just there's tons of ways that people can get involved, even if they don't have the means to give money. So we, we just want to grow our network. Um, we also have one program that we are definitely focusing on for this next however many years, um, the foreseeable future, and that's called Bee Friendly Farming. And um, it's a great program. It is something that we actually, it started in the Bay Area by a different group, and then they kind of passed it to us um, in 2012 or 13, I believe. and um, it's a certification for farmers um, and they have to meet certain criteria that they're being bee friendly in their practices and then they get a certification um, they get use of a logo that they could use at like farmers market or on their products or a sign that they put up you know in a tasting room or a restaurant or something like that um, we have over 700 members right now and we're looking to grow that. We had a goal of, uh, I believe it was growing to 2000 by the end of 2020. So um, we've got a long way to go, but I think it's possible. And, you know, people are, are really interested and I think really seeing the benefit of it. Um, you know, consumers really are really starting to recognize these, you know, the importance of these practices and they'll pay a premium for products and um, different, you know, uh, different uh, 
you know, products or, or food or whatever it is that um, are produced in these, with these practices. So, um, so that's another goal of our organization. Um, and then speaking just really broadly, we're kind of going into, so the North American Pollinator Protecting Campaign is celebrating its 20th anniversary year in 2020. So we're, we're kind of trying to promote this theme of um, healthy pollinators, healthy people, healthy planet. We really want to make this connection um, to you know, the, the work that we're doing that might seem small scale and specific, but it really has a much broader impact, especially in you know, the times of you know, climate concerns and um, you know, kind of increasing natural disasters and things like that. It, it really, it may not seem connected, but it's all connected to pollinator health. So we wanna really strive to make that um, a really well-known um, understanding. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know if you'd be aware of this because it's a very Texan thing. And I only know about it, even though I live in Texas right now, because I read a book on, you know, how to message things well. And um, they talked about how for the longest time that there was like a lot of litter and trash in Texas. And they, they tried getting people to be like, that's, you know, not right. Don't, don't litter. It's bad for the environment. But if anything that made like people litter more, mm. but they started this uh, campaign saying like, like, don't mess with Texas or like, that's not like what a Texan would be. And uh, and so the people who they actually called the the archetype a Bubba, like the person <laughs> that they were imagining, like a, a person with a pickup truck, et cetera, that would be uh, particularly prolific and uh, uh, polluting in this way. Mm -hmm. And so they targeted them with like, like, don't mess with Texas. And like, that's not what a Texan would do with lit, like with littering type stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, it like dropped it down to like 10%. Like it would like reduce it by like a, a massive amount. And so I always wonder if like there'd be like an amazing program where like people were like, like be friendly or something like that. And so like whenever like people on like uh, Instagram and stuff, when they're like um, eating like from a locally sourced place and uh, it's like they checked it out and it's good. They can like have like, let's be friendly or something like that. Yeah. And then it'd be like a really fun, like social thing. Cause um, I don't know, it rewards it. And I think like you touched on something really true, which is like nowadays, like if it was like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, like people were very much mass produ production, like low quality. Um, now we're more like high quality and like, I don't know, decent mass production, but like people are willing to pay more. And like the people make jokes about this all the time, like millennials, like in those artisanal things, but it's like, I, I personally would rather pay more for something to be done right. Like uh, I'm, I'm working on my own thing and like I would, like people have told me like, do you move it to China to, for factory manufacturing or keep it in America? And it's like, I'd, I'd keep it in America because of some uh, eth ethical reasons. But like, like people want, like it would cost more, but like the quality is higher. But um, I don't know where I'm going with that. Other than like the idea that uh, people like higher quality stuff. And I think that as more people are getting more and more engaged, I mean, there was like this, uh, depending on like when this comes out in the sequence, uh, people will hear about like how like a bunch of like uh, teenagers are suing the governments for climate change. So it's like people are getting really active about this, um, which is amazing because I think there's like this, I know, like learned helplessness a lot of people have where they feel like the environment's so big and there's, there's so many negative things going on. So they like, they feel like there's nothing they can do and they're just like sitting with this train coming and they know it's going to be horrible if they don't do anything, but they don't know how to do anything, which is why I love hearing about organizations like yours that is showing people, Hey, here are the different ways you can help out, which is just fantastic. Um, 
But yeah, I wish there was like a campaign like that. That was like the Texan, uh, that's don't mix with Texas or like be friendly or something. But yeah. um, I don't we'll know. To, we'll have to brainstorm about that. Yeah. All right, sweet. So the last three questions are the ones I always ask everyone. Um, and the, you can, I imagine since I'm talking to a person and also talking about an organization at the same time, like you can answer like both, like, cause people like to learn about you and like to hear about how, like the cool things you're working on. But the, uh, what is a question you have that you do not have the answer to that you'd love to have the answer to. So the example I would give, or, do you already have one? No, I don't. Okay, I'll stall for you. The, <laughs> so one that I have is, I say this a lot, so I'm gonna have to like think of another one, but I, I, wor- I wonder like if you could go back in time. So the Big Bang has a causational relationship to like the u- universe existing. So like Big Bang happens, universe happens. So if I were to go back in time and like metaphorically shoot the Big Bang in the head, like what would be here in its stead? Like, and then if I could, and then if I could like exist before the Big Bang, what was here? But like physicists tell me that it's a it's a hard it's like it's a difficult question to answer because I'm using inside universe concepts to describe a universe that exists without those concepts. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you only had the tools inside of a box to get outside the box and then understand what's outside the box if only those tools existed because they inside, lived inside the box. I don't have the answer to this, but no one does. And it bugs me. And I want to know if someone shot the big bang in the head, what would happen? But um, I don't know if that helped you at all. It doesn't have to be like that. It could be like, yeah. why, do, why do butterflies, I don't know, why are they so general or something? I don't know. It could be yeah. anything. Well, one thing I often think about is um, if like in the times of the changing climate and um, you know, we know the planet has gone through many cycles in the past. I always think about, I wonder, um, will like just how nature adapts and if pollinators will adapt. Um, I think, you know, there have been clear signs that, you know, certain species and beyond pollinators are in decline or going extinct, but there's other species that tend to thrive and there's species that shift their ranges. And I always wonder, you know, um, is nature that resilient that, you know, despite, despite, you know, human induced or just like natural, um, cycles, um, just how, how they'll, how they'll adapt and if certain species would survive over another, um, I think about that. Mm -hmm. So fun historical anecdote the fall of the Roman Empire, and I've told this pe- to people a lot, and they always think I'm joking, but the fall of the Roman Empire can be tied to climate change. There was a, uh, like a little freeze, and it made all the, the barbarians in the Romans, you know, eyes, barbarians, they were not barbarians, they were nice people too. And they were like, we can't eat up here anymore. So they, like, they went south to try and get food and uh, a, a new life. And then the Romans were like, where are all these people coming from? We can't fight them off. And then they just started, you know, plundering and destroying them all. But like you can tie like the fall of Roman Empire, which lasted a, a pretty long time to uh, basically a little, little blip in climate change. Hmm. And so like, and that's like nothing compared to what we're going to have now. I don't know if you've ever seen like those NOAA maps about uh, like how the water's going to rise. It's mm-hmm. like, I was thinking about moving to the East coast or the West coast. And it's like, nope. I like the West, the Midwest, like no one's messing with the Midwest. Like we're safe out here. Yeah. But, um, so what is a, uh, what is a, what is a problem you have that you would love help with? And that the listeners can help in. It could be anything. You could be like, you could dream big. You could be like one of those Ted talk things where like everyone nominates you and you like say a problem. Everyone has to help you out. It could be anything. Yeah. 
I put the pressure on? Let's see. <laughs> um, okay. I know this is probably not super exciting, but I think um, one thing myself and I think the organization would really benefit from and pollinators would benefit from is just um, help increasing habitat. Um, I we we lose you know acres and acres of habitat every day, and um, especially in the United States and and even more so in other areas of the world. And I think um, you know for the benefit of wildlife, but also for the benefit of humans, you know we really need to. We're never going to get back to like a pristine natural landscape overall. That's that we're kind of past that point, I think. But I think doing everything we can to help um increase native habitat when and where we can is is something i would encourage everyone to do and ask for help with mm -hmm. yeah the um another historical anecdote uh the like i don't know if you're familiar with this bible passage where like they go to the land of milk and honey like the when they flee egypt and the land of milk and honey was named that way because like it had like an amazing air culture like it was just like this really nice place and that's present day iraq which is like very deserty, and it's like that way. That still has like nice places that you can live off of, but it's very deserty because they didn't have very good agriculture practices. And which is um, a good like modern example of this is the like the Dust Bowl. If we didn't like, if FDR didn't like really put the gas on that, uh, like the gas pedal down to like do stuff with that, we would probably have like a giant desert in the Midwest. And we're still like repairing that, but mm -hmm. like um, just as like a cautionary tale, we don't want people to imagine. Iraq when they picture America or anything really um not that Iraq is a bad place but like I don't like a desert I like green like gr I need green around me that's just me personally but just a little fun uh, historical anecdote but um so in terms of books I like reading I know you like reading what are some books that you would recommend people check out if uh this helps what's uh the, what is the book that you tend to give people the most in terms of uh, pollination yeah. And personally, things that you love to read, because I, I, I mean, I will probably read everything you recommended. Cool. Okay. So in terms of pollinators, um, there's quite a few really great books out there. Um, there's one called Bees in Your Backyard. Um, it's a pretty popular one, and it is, uh, it's written by Jill Wilson and Olivia Messinger Carroll. Um, it's a nice, big, colorful book um, that talks about all the different bee species in North America. Um, and it's got, it's really, it's a really fun read as well. It's not like a textbook. It's, it's really enjoyable and kind of funny at times and um, really kind of, you know, characterizes all these different bees in a, a really fun way. And you also can learn about them and look at these beautiful pictures. And then hopefully after that, you'll be able to actually go out in your backyard or a local park or something and be able to see them. So that's a great one. Um, we actually, Pollinator Partnership, did a book called Bee Basics. It's a small book, um, uh, more of an educational resource. Um, uh, we did that one uh, with the Forest Service. It's available on our website for download and also for ordering. Um, and that's another one that talks about native bee species that I think is really, really fun and a really good starting point for people if um, bees in the backyard might be a little bit uh, more advanced and overwhelming if you're just getting into like learning about native bees but I think uh, bee basics is a really good one it's got really beautiful illustrations in it as well um, and then in terms of personally what I like to read 
Um, I primarily read uh, fiction. And um, my favorite author is Haruki Murakami. Um, he's a Japanese author. Okay, yeah, I know. And, um, he's written a lot of really amazing books. Um, actually, fiction and nonfiction. He's written a memoir. He wrote a book about just running and his like training of a mar- for a marathon. But he's written some great books as well. Um, just um, kind of surreal storytelling. You know, really interesting personal relationships and um, really beautiful writer and makes me really want to go to Japan. <laughs> I really want to go there. Um, and he just describes, you know, the countryside there and also the city really beautifully. And um, I would recommend Murakami. I want to read something like that. Could you uh, could you say one of his books? I feel like it's a, it, its name seems familiar. Yeah. So probably his most popular would be Kafka on the Shore. Yeah. Or The Wind-Up Bird Chronicles. Yeah. Norwegian Wood is another good one. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, like, I'm picturing wood. And somewhere in yeah. Norway, so like, or yeah, yeah. So I was close. The um, have you checked out Studio Ghibli? The uh, it's like, oh, you would love this, especially if you like the picturesque countryside aspect of yeah. uh, Japan. Okay. Um, there's a book. It's not a book. Actually, there's a book too. But um, it's Studio Ghibli. It's, it's like Disney, but um, they have a lot of like really cool female-led stuff too, which mm-hmm. is really cool. But um, one that you might like, like my girlfriend and I love it. Uh, it's called uh, My Neighbor Totoro. And then, the, um, I mean, I guess the, more of an adult one would be Howl's Moving Castle. It's so oh, beautiful. Basically, that movie. you've seen it? Okay, yeah. He makes, him and his team made a bunch of them. Uh, Nasca and the Valley of the Wind is basically about a world where, like, we polluted and then the world, like, kind of counteracted it. And it's about this woman trying to, like, find the balance between those two things. Mm. Um, it's really good. Um, but I check those out. Like they're, they're, they always make me feel like visiting Japan because it like the, the environment feels like a character. And mm. I love that, especially I grew up in the country and I don't like, I like lots of green and Japan seems to have lots of green. Mm-hmm. And as a cool uh, aside, um, Japan has the reverse problem in America where like people like to move out to the country and it's more expensive generally to go out there. But in Japan, it's actually cheaper because no one wants to live in the country. So the, the, like more often than not, they're like, give you a lot of incentives to go out in the country and like, you know, like a little like villa and something. So okay. it could be like, that's where they found Mark Hamill, like the star Wars guy when they were like, Hey, we're going to make star Wars movies. He was just like out in the countryside in Japan. Cause it's just like pretty cost effective. So you, your dream can be uh, an affordable reality. Perfect. All right. Perfect. Well, um, do you have, I hate being like the last person to say something. Do you have a quote or, um, or do you have like a favorite quote by chance that you like to leave people with? I feel like you'd really like the Gandhi quote, uh, "Be the change that, be the change that you want to see in the world," or something like that. Yeah, but I don't want to like put words I in your mouth. That one. Let's go with that because I don't really have a quote. <laughs> I will just say, uh, our tagline for Pollinator Partnership is "Protect their lives, preserve ours." I think that's a pretty simple kind of summation of of our mission. And that was Kelly. Remember to check out pollinator.org. Everything that we talked about in this episode is in the show notes, easily clickable on the website, learnwithlol.com. But beyond that, I just want to draw everyone's attention to the fact that this was a fantastic episode in part one of a multi-part series on pollinated insects, specifically the honeybee is where we're going to go. But just like you can see in this episode, we do get a monarchs and other ones that are going on. 
So if there's someone that you want to have me interview, let me know. I will add them. There's still a little room and I'm finishing it up, but you should get a lot of B content this month. They talk about B week. We're getting a B month. Additionally, remember to check out in the show notes, the link to the website for the crowdfunding campaign that I'm going to be running soon. If you've liked the, the podcast, if you've liked the episode, if you want to help out, check the link, sign up, share it with your friends. And every, every person, every time you get someone to sign up, any of this type of information is another chance that you're going to win. One of the things that I'm making and what I'm making is basically a modern beehive. I'm talking stainless steel, aerogel insulation, sensors, uh, data analytics, all that stuff, easily accessible 24-7. And that's going to be the crowdfunding campaign. But don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at LowellWasHere, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.